Having announced himself as an exciting new voice in horror with Kronos, Del Toro took it as an opportunity to follow it with his first English language debut, which would be Mimic, based on the Donald A. Williams short story. Here, Donald Toro brought to the screen a tale of shapeshifting bugs living in the New York subway system. In a production that would be hampered by the interference of producer Harvey Weinstein leaving Del Toro with a film he was so unhappy with that he pretty much disowned the film until his director's cut finally saw the light of day in 2011. But of course with all this hampering does this mean that the film was actually bad? Was this in fact perhaps a more hidden gem on the Del Toro filmography? I'm Elwood. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. Okay, uh, we are obviously back now with our second episode of season two. Uh, we're moving on to one of my personal favourites on the Del Toro filmography, which is Mimic. Uh, this is a film which I feel, since its release, has kind of gone under the radar for most people, despite the fact it had two direct-to-DVD sequels, which I'm not sure really says a lot about the film, but this is a film I really enjoyed. Again, this is a film I watched initially not knowing it not knowing so it was a del toro film or having that sort of connection with the director and i think del toro as a director i think it's for a lot of people it's only once pan's labyrinth came out that we started saying oh this is a del toro film and certainly this is the case with mimic which now looking back on it you can see so many del toro trademarks throughout it but at the time it was just you know it's a fun monster movie set in the new york subway system and you know there's a lot to like about that on that premise alone but kim i mean had you seen mimic before i mean is this another first time watching yourself yeah, pretty much most of uh del toro's films before pan's labyrinth is going to be a uh, first time viewing for me so that applies for mimic i've heard of it before this is one of those few movies that i've had i had heard of but um i mean back in the 90s i wasn't really watching a lot of horror so it it was not like you know something that popped up on my radar or anything so, yeah, I mean, I was really excited to see it. I mean, I've seen a lot of, um, I've watched in the last few years, you know, a few movies that revolved around this whole bugs and shape-shifting and disgustingness. And there's a lot of anticipation on what direction that Del Toro would take. So, I mean, the film itself, it's set in modern-day Manhattan. And we open to this disease uh, being spread by the cockroaches called Strickler's disease, which is basically killing all the children in the city. And as a result of this, uh, the deputy director of the CDC, uh, Peter Mann, he recruits this entomologist uh, called uh, Dr. Susan Tyler, who basically genetically creates... A new bug called the Judas breed 
and basically it's designed to go into the the sewer system and eliminate cockroaches and three years later Stickler's disease has been eliminated and basically her work has been held as this genius breakthrough however at the same time strange things are happening around the city we've got a priest that is being dragged away by a stranger silence and it's only once she starts investigating uh, that she finds out that her Judas breed bug might not have died as it originally planned three years ago and in fact may have evolved into something all the more peculiar, shall we say, without uh, sort of ruining anything this early in the show but this film for myself is super atmospheric Um, here we're obviously switching over to New York from obviously Spain where we were in the previous film with Kronos and yet when we look at the outside of this church, I couldn't help but think of the outside of the building uh, during the finale of Kronos. We both had that sort of similar sort of light-up sign and people hanging around on uh, window washer scaffolds. So it's kind of fun that where one film ends, another one begins. But, I mean, how did you obviously find... What's your sort of opening thoughts on Mimic? I mean, what what did you think of this film? Um, I really liked it. Uh, That's good I... to know. I, <laughs> I this really is like my it. barometer. It's like if you don't like Mimic, we can't be friends. So I'm kind of glad that you didn't like it. <laughs> well, not expecting a heated argument over there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I I think that Mimic is really good. I think what you nailed really well was atmospheric is really the key word here. Is a lot of um, Del Toro's uh, signature. I mean, we talked about when we did Anderson in season one, we talked about a lot of his signature and that was a lot of visuals, a lot of, you know, camera work, um, a lot of, you know, that sort of stuff. For Del Toro, I've always found found him to be more of like an atmospheric sort of director. So, like, I mean, obviously Pan's Labyrinth is a really good example and we're going to talk about that more when we get to that episode. Um, But, I mean, Mimic is, is such a contrast from Kronos, mostly because, you know, I was, I was very you know, average, indifferent towards Kronos. Um, so Mimic had actually, you know, you kind of have those, like, um, darker scenes, obviously. Um, there's more of kind of like this, um, I don't know, maybe it's because it's bugs, so you have all these bug noises all the time, and it, it gets a little under your skin. Um, at the same time, you know, like, there's really not a whole lot of, at least it never feels like there's, like, a whole lot of... Um, orchestral music there is some parts at the at, at some some parts like uh at the end i remember it more clearly um but i feel like there's a lot of silence there also using kind of like the surrounding sounds to really build the environment and build the atmosphere and kind of like create this you know this kind of i don't know this creepy feeling you know you don't really know what's going on and then it's and and on top of that you know What's really nice is that while this one, um, you know, it revolves around bugs and that sort of stuff, it never really gets very disgusting because, I mean, there are some parts which are a little, like, you know, nauseating, I guess. (laughs) But it's never really intense either. And and it's nice to see a film that, you know, I, I always appreciated Del Toro for using kind of, like, not always, like, you know, this whole focus on making a horror film that's full of just like disgusting stuff you know like yeah i mean there's definitely a, an element of grime 
to this film but mm-hmm. it's as i said it's a very it's it's in f- keeping with the location i mean we're in, obviously in the underground yeah. of new york here we're in particular we're going through the subway system and i mean underground and catacombs are one of the big themes for del toro again insects which we obviously saw uh referencing chronos in particular the yeah. sort of scarab device and here we actually now graduate to full bugs or um sort of mutated bugs should we say and it's great the fact that before we even get into the under sort of the underground and we start trying to find these these giant bugs he's already outlying the sort of groundwork of how the, how these bugs are going to work because he's by using the entomologist um in dr tyler she's basically she's there when she's she has these uh, two sort of street kids who basically bring her like moths and different bugs they find off the street and uh she's this is great scene when she's like explaining how hive mentality works how the, the different bugs all play their parts and how he then changes and relates this to his bug society he's got living in the subway system um i feel it's just absolutely perfect how he brings it all together so he's sort of like explains his concept without having to like to stop and do this huge explanation of why everything is that it is he sort of gives us the information and we're able to put it there ourselves which is always nice to see and here he really once again i mean he manages to create this otherworldly place just from the new york subway system it's this very familiar place yet in his hands it seems very otherworldly and certainly once we get into the sort of second half of the film and we're exploring the subway system and there's all these elements that other directors probably miss off and the fact that you've got all sort of like the mole people who were living in the subway system who mysteriously disappeared when the bugs turned up so you've got all like the little hobo signs on the walls uh we go further and we see like the old subway system and uh all these different sort of elements they've it's almost like you're discovering this whole civilization that's been buried underneath the streets of New York that people have forgot about and these bugs now moved in and made their own world and I just love the fact that he's disabled to create these otherworldly places out of very everyday situations and here it certainly excels and at the same time this is unlike Chronos this is sort of very more straightforward monster movie it's also helped by the fact I mean he's working obviously with a larger budget and a sort of within the studio system so he has a lot more freedom to do a lot more sort of flamboyant and crazy sort of things um, as we obviously see with like the creature effects as I said there's just so many little elements about this film that I just really enjoy I mean when it comes to the bugs themselves I mean how did you sort of find uh the design and especially like the big reveal of how they've been hiding in every in sort of plain sight I think that I think that that's the really smart part is at the same time it's like you know you really can tell how you know while Del Toro really didn't he wasn't uh, part of the writing I don't think he really it really helps that the story itself is is done in a way where you kind of like it's like what you said you know like they kind of talk about um, the creature as they find it and through the scenes and how like the different scenes really work and are edited together really well as it flows between different uh, areas that they go to, between like the different characters that they have that are grouped together. And they start talking about how like this Judas bug has evolved and you start seeing these pieces of signs about why they are able to hide in plain sight. Um, 
you know, spoilers free right now. So I don't want to go into that yet. Just the fact that, you know, like the bug design and how, you know, we're starting to see these creatures who only get, um, I mean, just like any monster movie or any creature feature, you kind of have like the concept of revealing your your villain very slowly because they're, you know, a new thing pretty much. And I think that that's the part that really excels here. Like, I thought the design was really nice in when we had the big final reveal. Um and obviously, as we saw bits and pieces of the of the creature, it it was very fun to watch, especially, you know, when we had that first, you know, um, dark appearance of the creature. And it was just like they were just walking in the streets right in the beginning. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know what it is and you hear the sounds and whatnot. And then the boy, which is uh, which is Chewy or whatever his yeah. name is, um, he... He just kind of, um, he, like, imitates the sound of the walking or something with his, with, with the spoons. And then he says, like, and he says something about, like, weird shoes or something like that, that he can't pin down. And that's his fascination is being able to pinpoint shoes and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously we've got, uh, got Chewie here who's, <laughs> unlike the granddaughter character we obviously had in Kronos, he's a bit more of a diversive sort of character. I mean, this this kid's obviously is, um, the autistic ward of this shoe shiner called Manny, and his whole he's basically he, he's not in school, so he just spends all his time with his uh, with his uh, father, and he's able to mimic sounds, as you said, on on the on the spoons, and he's able to recognize people's shoes just by looking at them because all he does all day is basically watch his father clean shoes. So with these bugs, he couldn't recognize what, uh, what these strange figures shoes are. So the, he just constantly refers to him as, uh, Mr. Funny feet, uh, makes these little scale, these little models out of bits of wire that he finds. And I don't mean, I liked the character. The character itself is, it's always difficult when you portray mental illness on, on, yeah. on film or mental disability, should I say? Um, it's always sort of difficult in, in how you play it because it either works or you end up with something like the Inner Capra and what's eating Gilbert Grape, and it just irritates the crap out of you. And Chewie, for the most part, is fine. It's just at the end when they try to make him the surrogate child character, and it's all like, oh, just stop it already. You, we just know we just know that child's going straight in, straight off to social services once those credits roll. He's not going to end up with the uh, the happy couple at the end. I think it was it was great the fact that he's the only one who notices them. Everyone else is just like Karen. He's just like you know the, the these bugs are just able to blend so well into just everyday life that nobody notices them. They just assume they're just someone else in the on the subway platform, and obviously he's able to because obviously he's more perceptive to the noises that these bugs make, the little chattering noises um, and also the fact that he can recognise by their feet that you know they're not wearing shoes because well, no, they're bugs, they don't wear shoes <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's, it's nice because you know in, in some ways um, Mimic kind of kind of goes two ways in a certain way in, in, in like the title itself kind of goes both ways in a certain idea where it kind of works in the sense of like Chewie being able to notice them, but at the same time, it also kind of blends in with you know the the idea of how these bugs are 
you know, part of the society and no one notices them. And, um, yeah, so either way, I mean, I think, like, other than Chewie, I mean, the cast is really good. I really like the idea of how there are multiple scenes and multiple characters that are going on at the same time. So, you know, for example, we have, you know, da uh, Susan, who's, who's going to, um, I think it was like the sewage waste disposal center or something. Yeah. Uh, and then they discover this creature um, and has, <laughs> and then at the same time, and, uh, and, and then at the same time, you know, you have, you know, the impatient husband who just ends up going into the subway system with his buddy, um, who is played by Josh Brolin. Yeah, an impossibly um, young Josh Brolin, it has to be said. I mean, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know until this time that it was Josh Brolin. When I watched it originally, I just thought it was, you know, character actor number 272 or whatever. I didn't realise it's Josh Brolin. It's kind of fun to know that he didn't just go from, like, the Goonies to No Country for Old Men, as it constantly seems. It's sort of like... Josh Brolin was in the Ganoos and he like disappeared and then suddenly came back this like brooding, handsome uh, man. <laughs> and no, he's, he was obviously doing things in between like Mimic. And uh, yeah. here he's really good. He adds a lot of, a lot of spice to the film. Um, I think between him and Charles S. Dutton's uh, subway cop character, whose yeah. who's main role is just basically complain <laughs> and bitch about everything <laughs> Uh, the whole time, but I mean, I love Charlie's done since I saw Alien Three, and here he's great again as this officer Leonard, who for some reason Peter uh, just has this real thing about just aggravating him as much as possible. It seems like Peter's going out of his way to just like aggravate this guy for just the sole reason that he was just doing his job initially, but because he stopped and get into these lockers, now Peter just seems to on this mission just to aggravate him at any given opportunity, so that. He now makes him work overtime, so he has to join him in the sewers. He, like, constantly belittles him. It's sort of like, just leave the man alone. He's doing his job. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's just the concept of, like, a different view, right? He wants this done, and he he he's kind of like, you know, well, why don't you just kind of... Why don't you just kind of, um, you know, be able to be a little bit more flexible with the rules? But obviously, you know... He, he follows these sets of rules in order to, you know, protect himself in a certain way. And that's important in his line of work. And you really see kind of like, I guess you can really see the characters kind of really bond in a certain way by the end. Especially in, in terms of, you know, the dangerous situation that they end up being in. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I mean, at the same time, we were talking about Josh Brolin, and I was looking at the credits, and there was also, I think, a cameo by Norman Reedus. <laughs> yeah, no uh, Norman Reedus plays the sewage worker. Yeah, um, right, that guy who's, like, all, like, uh, surfer dude talking. Yeah, here. yeah, the Reeduses are really, <laughs> big, really excited about that one, because, uh, again, this was someone else. I had no idea it was there until I stumbled across a, a Reedus fan site, and they're like, Oh, here's all the screenshots of Norman Reedus in Mimic. I was like, who the hell was he in Mimic? Was he like one of the <laughs> bugs or something? I mean, Doug Jones is in this film. And I didn't think Doug Jones worked with Dill Talk. Because again, this is my... The fun thing about this project is the fact that I thought Norman Reedus first worked with Delta on Blade 2. And I thought Doug Jones came in, uh, obviously, as a creature actor. He came in and did, like, Hellboy. And 
and uh, that play Abe Sapien. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth also. Yeah, exactly. And uh, no, Dave, Doug Jones is here to, working with Del Toro way back on Mimic um, as here he plays Long John number two. So that starring role. <laughs> he uh, made an impression, okay? So that's why he got hired again. <laughs> he did it. He did good. But uh, yeah, Norman Reedus is is fun again. Impossibly young, looking Norman Reedus here, and uh, he's uh, yeah. I mean, it. I mean, there's not a lot to really say. I mean, it's it's not the the biggest of parts for him, but he's certainly memorable. Um, as you said, he's like the surfer dude who worked at the sewage plant um, in this film. So, I mean, just to obviously talk about these characters, I didn't. Did you feel there was like any one sort of character? Because I mean, this is a pretty mismatched group. Yet by the end, they all seem to sort of mesh together, and everyone seems to have a purpose for being down in the subway system. It never felt like any particular one person shouldn't be there. So, I mean. What, how did you obviously find our sort of like uh, front together group? Well, I, I like this kind of ragtag team all the time. Like you might not like we might not be able to first realize how these people all came together. But because, you know, in the beginning, they they each had their purpose as to how they got down there. Not everybody went down through the same way. Yeah. And they all got there at a different time. And with all this information that they have as, you know, they each wandered different areas and stuff. And with their different, you know, um, know-hows, I guess, and, like, their knowledge of, of just in general of what happened, or, or, like, something like Susan, who has a more in-depth kind of knowledge of what she's built in a certain way, well, in pieces, and she didn't really know that it didn't die. Um, you know, they all work together really well. And obviously, at the end, it's it's about survival, right? Uh, in the end, it's it's all about, you know, the, the I have to give credit to it is that while the first part was kind of like really slow burn and really just um, kind of like a mystery thriller and you're kind of learning about it, at the end it's, it gets like pretty, you know, action-packed yeah. and moving around and you really have that, um, I guess there's one scene that really reminds me of Alien or Aliens um, <laughs> and it's it's really nice to see scenes like that and just how things really like, um, and just, you know, they're all working together and it's super intense at the end when they're trying to hatch their last plan to get out of there but then they realize it comes to the you know revelation of of how maybe the way they want to go is not exactly it because the problem in the end hasn't been solved yet there's also we get i mean we obviously get elements of sacrifice here and i never felt it was it was sort of like this forced emotional reaction it's sort of like oh we've we're going to have this big emotional moment and it felt it felt like generally emotional when when someone we lost like a member of this group and obviously if someone uh especially sacrifice it never felt like this overblown moment it felt like it felt very sort of had sort of like a, a sort of natural element to it and as i said there's there's certain characters i that if we were talking about like the one i would have saved there's there's at least two here that I would I wanted to uh, sort of save and and see by the end credits. There was a couple that I didn't want to see make the end credits, but uh, there's certainly one or two that I wanted to, to see make it through uh, through there. And I think it's it's great the fact that Del Toro, even at this stage, he's sort of able to like really sort of know how to play an audience, um, especially because this is such a change in style from when we look at Chronos. I mean, obviously Chronos is 
uh, kind of got this sort of focus on obsession and respinning the vampire mythos. And here we've got, as I say, it's more sort of traditional monster movie, sort of running around in the uh, New York subway system, and he is able to switch styles very effortlessly. Um, mm-hmm. And sort of in the same time as you as you mentioned earlier, I mean, you can see where he's borrowing elements from the things he loves, sort of like the idea of, sort of horrors of science and bugs and uh, monsters and practical effects. I mean, they're all these elements that he's sort of already bringing into play. And certainly as we go further into his filmography, those influences become more and more prominent. And it's uh, it's interesting, obviously, to see what's coming through here, even though, obviously, the Weinsteins were pretty much determined to butcher the hell out of this. I mean, they complained that the early footage from the film wasn't scary enough. And they would constantly march down to the set and make demands and try and change things around and... Even at one point, they threatened to have Del Toro removed from the film, and it was one of those great moments where the cast stood up to the producers and said, no, not on our watch, because basically, Mira Sorino, who at that point, she just won the Oscar for Mighty Rafferty, and that was produced by the Weinstein's company, Miramax, and she was like, you know, if you remove Del Toro from this film, I'm going to quit as well. And this was further backed up by the fact she was dating their golden boy, Quentin Tarantino, at the time. So he also got involved and basically overturned the Weinstein's decision to to get uh, Del Toro removed from the film. And basically ensured that he sort of stayed on to the completion completion of the film. And I think it's been one of those, was one of those sort of cautionary tales back when the Weinsteins were still... You know, a reputable force rather than Weinstein being Harvey Weinstein being sort of out as the disgusting pervert that he is. That if you weren't one of his golden boys, if you weren't someone like Tarantino, you were or Kevin Smith, you were going to be facing facing them buggering around with your production. And this is sort of one again one of those more cautionary tales. And I can see where they've obviously brought him across because of them being such big fans of foreign language cinema. But it's just it was just so frustrating seeing how many projects that they just constantly bugged around with, um, and it's I don't know, I don't know whether it's a good thing that uh, well obviously it's a good thing that Harvey Weinstein's making pay for it for it, but the fact that there's been no other sort of producers who are sort of like looking at the foreign and the independent markets and seeing what sort of talent they can bring across, but Harvey Weinstein living up to his moniker of Harvey Scissorhands certainly isn't something that I'm not missing in the film industry certainly. While we're obviously talking about the cast, uh, according to Del Toro, Milo Silvera and Jeremy Northam couldn't stand each other, which is really great when you're playing romantic leads opposite each other. So <laughs> we have all these scenes where they're like uh, having all these romantic embraces and they're frolicking in the bath and <laughs> having all these like <laughs> trying to have a kid together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, I couldn't tell that they had tension, so all the more credit to them. So, but. Yeah. I can't imagine like the fact that you hate hate someone's guts and you're like forced to have these romantic scenes with this person. It's like, well, to be fair, I thought the weakest part of the film were those parts because it was really it felt so pointless in the whole, you know, the whole um, scope of the film. I guess because in the end, it didn't really play in at all. You know, it what was it in the end that you know like. The kid was going to be theirs in some way. Yeah, you know? I don't know. The whole pregnancy angle you know? is certainly—it's kind of skewered by the fact that we end up with Chewie 
now as kind of this adopted child that they've that they have when they're going to be having a child of their own and sort of like you've got this whole idea that she's unable to it certainly seems to be building the fact that she's unable to have children herself so she's through the genus bugs she's essentially created life so she's compensating for the fact she can't have children of her own by creating life another way um and the fact that she's now obviously having to deal with the sort of guilt of her creation very sort of frankenstein-esque um the fact that she's sort of racked with this sort of guilt of you know if she hadn't created the genus bugs then all these like generations of children would have been killed off by strictless disease um yet but by the fact that she has that she went ahead and did uh create these bugs without sort of thinking of the consequences and now meant that she's now having to wander around in the uh, subway system trying to find this bloody nest and it's that's the only thing i sort of took away from that whole romantic angle but yeah it did it did feel largely pointless throughout the rest of the film for sure yeah, I mean, that, that was really the, the one downside. I mean, I, I think that a, most of the film worked really well, and they, they did keep those scenes fairly sparse. So it wasn't like, you know, it's not something that comes to mind right away. And they spend a lot of time really um, looking at the whole idea. And I, and I think you bring up a really good point, is that the film really um, kind of has a focus on whether what she did was right you know, what is the right thing? Was doing this, you know, like, on one hand, obviously, um, um, Leonard was like, well, it wasn't Leonard, it was Manny, who was like, when he learned about her being a part of, you know, messing with life in a certain way and creating this bug and that, that you know, that killed the roaches and whatever and saved the thing. And he was, you know, super angry about the fact of why she did that. But on the other hand, it was kind of like, if she didn't do that, then a bunch of kids would have died. And, you know, that that would have been also a bad outcome. Like, where you're kind of in this, um, well, obviously we don't, because this is more of like a monster film, we don't really end up having to think about that too much. But when you sit back, I think that that's one of the the ethical questions or something, or morally, what what is morally correct in her situation? Like, should she or should she not have created these bugs? Yeah, definitely. Um, let's talk a bit about uh, the actual bugs themselves now, because we get some really cool bug attack scenes here. Uh, in particular, two kids <laughs> bite it really cool. Um, I mean, th- this is one of those rare occasions where the kids aren't, aren't uh, going to be getting away escape free. And I think I was sort of racking my brains to other films where the kids bite it. And I came up with, like, you know, the Blob remake from, like, the ni- 1980s. And uh, it's so rare to see kids die in films. So I've, it's kind of uh, a credit to that Del Toro's like, you know, kids aren't going to be <laughs> imperable. If you go, like, in stupid places, you're going to have to pay the price of your actions and i think the whole scene where these two street kids are attacked by uh the bugs when they stumble across one of their nest nesting sites i think is such a cool sight especially because it looks like one of them's gonna get away um and the other one's because one gets his leg caught in wire it's just such a really sort of tense sort of little scene um the fact that he bumps off two kids in the same scene i think was like wow that was kind of shocking Dotora. <laughs> especially because you know at that point del toro isn't you know he 
he's known, but not that known, you know? Mm. And and it, it's interesting to see, like, how daring he is with, like, the way he does his films in that sense. Um, I mean, child endangerment has been, you know, very widely used, I think, um, in the later years and, like, nearer to now. You know, there's a lot of child endangerment going on and people love to use kids in horror films and such like that. Um, so it is rare to see that, you know, the the kids didn't make it, I guess. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there were some really cool death scenes. Um, obviously, there was a lot of blood because, but a lot of also hidden because, you know, we never really get to see the bug until, you know, finally the reveal of it. Um, I think one of the scenes that kind of really um, emphasized that is the one where uh, where Josh Brolin dies, actually. <laughs> mm, that's really cool. Uh, yeah, that one was that one was a really good death scene. We he almost escapes, you know, <laughs> and then he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, the other one I really like is the priest who falls off the roof at the start of the film. And yeah. where uh, it's one of those great moments where Del Toro is substituting out a gory moment for a less for, for a more suggestive moment, and we see this in Hellboy as as well, where he's substituting gore for something else, but in our mind it's still playing the same. And the priest basically falls off this roof, and he you see the head smashed out, and then the, you see like a paint explosion. Um, yeah. spurt up at the back, it's sort of like, uh, and in our minds, that's you know, that's like a brains or whatever, like exploding over. But uh, Dentoro like restrains himself, and he's like, No, you just get the little paint splatter, and it's going to represent this. But in your mind, you're going to know what it's supposed to mean. And I thought that was such a really cool shot. Um, uh, something we also forgot to bring up as well is the fact that uh, Federico Lupi, who obviously had the central in in Kronos and a favorite actor of del toro was originally going to be cast as the um cast as the uh, shoeshine guy in this film manny? yeah yeah he was going to be cast as manny but his english pronunciation wasn't uh, good enough for the film so that's why uh, they ended up free casting recasting the role with uh giancarlo gianni instead and that was actually one of the things where del toro said that he like missed the most about working in Spanish language is the fact that he couldn't work with Lupi because he felt that Lupi is like one of the greatest actors that he could work with uh, so I mean I, but, I was, but at the same time I was watching the film it's like well couldn't they like cast him as the priest or something at the beginning or work him in that way <laughs> well I guess it felt like a cop out right in, in that sense that it was kind of disrespectful to give someone that you respected a role where he just falls falls off a roof and <laughs> dies. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you you can't speak that well, but how about how about this role where you don't have to speak? <laughs> um, okay. Well, let's move on to our further viewing, and this one is, I mean, there's many sort of interesting ways so you could go with this one. I I feel, but uh, do, I mean, do you want to go first, or should I go first? How do you want to do it? Um, I'm guessing that you have films that are going to be a little bit more on topic. Mine is more on the... I have two picks. Okay. Uh, and I'll go first. Yep. So, um, the first I'm going to go in the angle of is, um, just... Well, both of them is the same. Uh, I'm going in the angle of bugs. Bug films. So, one of them is straight off, uh, 2006's Bug. 
um, with Michael Shannon and Ashley Judd, uh, which kind of like is is takes on the um, of, of reality and delusion and conspiracy of whether um, these bugs are actually like they think that there's a bug infestation going on and um, this unhinged war veteran played by uh, Michael Shannon convinces convinces this uh, broken lady Ashley Judd that that they should stay in their room and that these bugs are infesting them and monitoring them and it's all part of a bigger conspiracy and it just kind of goes a little crazy but as a thriller this one works really well as kind of like a horror thriller um it has it, it's a little weird um i don't think every a lot of people love it but it's it's one i found um i i think it's kind of a hidden gem Mostly because, well, you know, Michael Shannon is good at everything. <laughs> I don't think many and, people um, disagree with you on that point, but... Yeah, well, he plays odd roles, but they turn out really well and fitting for his character, I think. Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that by the time we get to, like, The Shape of Water. Uh, so, the second choice that I have is um, Bite, which is kind of blends... Um, which is kind of, like, this one is pretty much an homage to The Fly, so obviously there's a lot of bug aspects to it. There's a lot of disgusting bits to it. Um, but I like the idea of um, kind of like a bug bite and it's kind of evolves into something else. And in that sense, I think it kind of blends into this one where there's this kind of unknowing factor about what bit her and um, how it turns into, you know, <laughs> turns into something that gets really bad, crazy. And it kind of reminded me of like one of the, a few of the scenes where we were looking for the nest and all that stuff. And this one reminded me a lot of um, how this movie evolves as well. So your choices. <laughs> That's good. I mean, nothing wrong with those choices. I mean, bug especially reminds me of the X-Files episode, War the Cuffages, uh, where cockroaches are being blamed for this mysterious deaths in town, but it's all... <laughs> This element of coincidence that uh, the cockroaches are uh, perhaps not as responsible as they, they first seem. Um, for myself, uh, first of all, we're going to start with 1997's The Relic, uh, directed by Peter Hayams. This is a film um, which is, again, features elements of people wandering around the sewer hunting monsters, which is always good. Uh, also shows as um, Penelope Ann Miller um, demonstrating that you can also hunt monsters in your little black dress. Well, being uh, supported by Tom Sizemore. Um, basically, a monster gets loose in the sort of uh, Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, uh, which also happens to be on this important gala night. So you've got these this scientist and this cop basically trying to battle this monster that's uh, loose and eating people's brains in the museum. It's a fun throwaway uh, movie and kind of a underappreciated uh, film much like Mimic so definitely check that out um, also worth uh, checking out in terms of like evolved bugs would be Phase 4 by Saul Bass Basically, uh, here we have ants getting hit by radioactive waves which is increasing their civilization and they form their own super intelligent civilization as they go through different, stages, different phases uh, in their term their plans to take over the world um this is a really fascinating movie mainly because it's short like an animal nature documentary so he used like real ants and it's absolutely astounding what you see these ants do in this movie as they uh traumatize this scientific team that are basically sent out to investigate what's happening 
on the more sort of hokey side of things, you can watch Them, uh, which is like a 1950s B-movie about giant ants in the Nevada desert, uh, including that classic showdown in the sewer system, uh, which you get to see the army with welding flamethrowers and battling giant bugs who are determined to steal the world's sugar resources or do whatever it is that giant ants want to do. Um, those would be obviously my random uh, random picks. So, uh, yeah, I think you've got some definitely some food for thought there. Um, and this obviously wraps up our its edition of Movies and Tea. Uh, we hope you've uh, enjoyed listening as always. Uh, of course, if uh, you want to get involved you can follow us on facebook you can also follow us on twitter you can also check out uh, our full archive on both podmanic and itunes and anchor.fm uh you can also check out our blog uh which is movies and tea podcast.wordpress.com thank you kim and uh there you can also find our complete archive as well as some really fun writing for both myself and uh, kim on not only the movie del toro but our previous writings on uh paul w sanderson who was obviously our focus for way back in season one so thank you again for listening and thank you of course to my co-host miss kimler thank you for listening you everyone um and we will be back next time as we return to uh to del toro making spanish language films with the devil's backbone <laughs>